the animation podcast, June 2nd, 2008. The animation podcast is sponsored by animationmentor.com, the online animation school. Sign up for their free monthly newsletter for animation tips, student profiles, and access to my upcoming Animation Mentor exclusive animation podcast at animationmentor.com. Hey everybody, this is Clay Cadis. Welcome to episode 27 of the Animation Podcast. In this show, my conversation with Ken Duncan continues. Ken and I met and recorded on two separate days, and this episode is the conclusion of that first meeting. If you don't know Ken, he has supervised characters at Disney, such as Meg and Hercules and Jane and Tarzan. At DreamWorks, he was a sequence supervisor on Shark Tale, and recently he has focused his attention on running his independent animation company, Duncan Studio. Working with Ken on Hercules, Tarzan, and Treasure Planet provided me with a great animation education, and I'm excited to be able to share this interview with you. So please enjoy part two of my interview with Ken Duncan. So we kind of got away from your history, but we'll assume that you went to Disney. (laughs) (laughs) Well, yeah. So from Ireland. How was that transition? Did you uh, know anyone at Disney at the time? I didn't. Did I? I don't think I did. You know, when I was at in Ireland, you know, Roger Rabbit happened over in, in London. Uh-huh. That was going on. So that was pretty cool over there. And then I think I had heard that Disney was in a, a period of growth that mm-hmm. they wanted to... This was just after Little Mermaid? Yeah, it was 87. No, wait. I came to the States in 88. So oh, yeah, about I think time. during Mermaid. Yeah. And uh, I think I called Disney from Ireland. I called uh, Don Hahn and was asking if if they were looking for people. I think they were, but that was about it. You know, I, so I just, I was a supervisor at Bluth at that time. Mm-hmm. And, uh, after all dogs go to heaven, I, I quit and I just flew to New York and stayed with my brother who was living there. And, uh, again, without a job, I had a tendency to leave and go to countries without jobs. But, uh, and from New York, I called up Don Hahn and, uh, said I was going to come to LA and if, if, if he would see me for an interview. And, uh, he said, sure. So I flew to L.A. Uh, with my brother, and I interviewed with uh, with Don. And he was very positive, but it was going to take several months before I could get a work visa because I'm a Canadian citizen. At the same time, John Pomeroy had returned to Los Angeles from Ireland and set up a very small studio in L.A. Uh, on Olive Avenue in Burbank. Uh, about six people were working there. So For Bluth, right? For Bluth. Yeah. And... He'd heard I was around, and I worked with him in Ireland. So uh, he was kind enough to hire me here in Burbank, and I sort of stayed with Bluth for another year here in Burbank, and then eventually made the switch over to uh, to Disney. Okay. Was that uh, during Rockadoodle? That was yes. <laughs> <laughs> Don't laugh. <laughs> <clears throat> That's, that was a sincere effort. Uh, so anyway, uh, you know, I, I had just seen Little Mermaid, and I thought, okay. There's a place to do character animation. Hmm. So I, I made the jump over to, to Disney and worked on the f- last four months of Rescuers Down Under. They were trying to wrap that one up. I worked on Duncan Marjorie Banks' character, okay. uh, McLeach, mm-hmm. and the boy. So I tended to do a lot of human characters mm-hmm. wherever wherever I went. Even in the four months there, was, was it very different than your past experiences? Yeah, well, you know, you had Glenn. You know, you had icons... What was cool was that it was a new generation of people coming in, you know, and it was people that wanted to do animation. You know, I, I discussed earlier about how I was in Canada wanting to do animation, nobody really to, to talk to about it. Mm-hmm. So all of a sudden, 
at Disney was a whole new generation of people that had grown up wanting to do character animation. Here they were. So, and not everybody knew how to do it yet. And you had guys like Glenn and Andreas, et cetera. And the mindset of the studio was to get better. I mean, that was, it was Disney. You got to get better to move up, to be an animator. It was sort of an apprenticeship system. And, um, and it was great because it wasn't just about footage. It was about getting better. So, and, you know, you had Glenn there, et cetera, you know, who, who better to learn from, even through osmosis. It wasn't mm-hmm. like he sat down and told you how to do it. Right. 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 And, uh, you know, it's seeing what he was doing every week or, you know, having access to the, to those guys. And you could, you know, see him in the hallway and ask him questions, et cetera. And you had James Baxter starting. You had Nick had come over from London. Um, Russ Edmonds had been there, had come over from CalArts. Will Finn was there. It was just a great combination of guys that really loved animation. And it was a matter of learning. It was just, hey, that guy's trying that. And that guy, oh, that's kind of cool cartoony stuff. Uh, how did he do that? And it was really learning from each other. And So what did I work on, actually? Do I remember? McLeish stuff? Did you do any Joanna stuff? Or I didn't it? do any Joanna. I did her tail in a shot where he slams the door on her tail. I okay. think that was about it. Yeah, working on Joanna was like uh, Kathy Zielinski and Dave Cutler. Dave was uh, an amazing young animator at the time. Around Rescuers is when I met my wife, Juliette Stroud, at the time. She was uh, a cleanup artist. She had actually made a college film called Snuckles back around 86. That kind of was on Spike and Mike's Festival and was a little bit of a cult classic at the time. Yeah, it's very funny. Yeah. <laughs> she went to school with Andrew Stanton and Tony Fricelli and all those guys. So uh, Rescuers wasn't a huge success, right? Uh, uh, not financially, remember. but I think it was, again, it was a good place for guys to start working yeah, together. Yeah, it was like the first fully... And a lot of people still today go, well, that, that's kind of a nice film. Oh, you I know? think so. Yeah, yeah I, was, I was always a fan of it. Like, yeah. It was just, I don't know if that's a good thing, but it was so clean looking. Mm-hmm. And just Oh, that was the first digital yeah, ink and paint film. Yeah. So, yeah, the next film I think was Beauty and the Beast, mm-hmm. which is actually the film I think I interviewed initially with Don Hahn about, because it was had just oh, come okay. back from being... They were doing it in England at the Purdoms. Yeah. And they pulled it from there and had brought it back to Burbank or uh, Glendale. Mm-hmm. So when you so started and, on Beauty and the Beast, was had it already kind of gone through all the turmoil of the yeah. story restart and all that stuff? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So by the time we got on it uh, as animators, there wasn't a lot of time to... I mean, the film was done in a very short amount of time when I look back at it. Mm-hmm. Years later, some of the films took a lot longer to make, but... For some reason, that one kind of went through quickly. And again, that was really the same crew as Rescuers. That was the same. Yeah, it was. All, we were only, we were only doing one film at a time at the time. So, mm-hmm. I think Andreas came on. He had been working on the Mickey short, so he came over to work on Beauty and the Beast. Mm-hmm. And you know, you had again new group of people. Dave Prakshma was was also there as a supervisor. Chris Wall. I shared an office with Chris at the time. Mm-hmm. He was supervising LeFou. Again, when I when I think back to Beauty and the Beast in those films, it, it was really a small team. Uh, the other day, I found a little map of the world of all the crew of that film, and it was it was done in a small building uh, in Glendale. Yeah, the, yeah, wasn't the Airway Building? Yeah, the Airway Building, yeah. and like just seemed like there were like four layout guys. The editorial was around the corner. It was everybody was on one floor. Mm-hmm. Andreas had a little trailer with his crew in a trailer outside. I mean, it was it was the <laughs> number one studio in the world at the time, and it just seemed like, if you look back on it, it seemed rinky-dink. But yeah. at the same time, it had a really cool 
dynamic uh, for making those films. Yeah, yeah. I was an intern in that building. Oh, you were? Yeah. Oh, cool. Yeah. <clears throat> so on Aladdin, you animated on Jafar, right? Animated on Jafar, and that that was kind of a fun film because the design of it was so kind of cartoon style mm-hmm. and then nice. that's the film that eric came to disney on right that's right yeah so he was he's... doing tesser leon on the uh, genie i remember that mm-hmm. yeah to me uh, aladdin is like the height of experienced disney animation all in one film right glenn was on the film and after that they all split for lion king yep okay on, on lion king you didn't work very long on lion king did you no i don't i actually from uh from aladdin that that's when they started to to do two films at the same time mm-hmm. and a bunch of us went into a different building to work on Pocahontas. Uh, Eric was directing that with Mike Gabriel mm-hmm. and there was a crew doing Lion King. So I was tagged to supervise a character named Thomas in Pocahontas. And how, how do you think that transition happened? Did you kind of um, campaign for it? Or did yeah, they just I think I ask I'd, you to do it. I think I brought it up with Peter Schneider at one point. Mm-hmm. Again, I, I would have liked to have had a chance to supervise, and I think he just brought my name up in a meeting, and probably somebody said, "Yeah, let's give him a chance." Uh, I really don't know exactly how it happened. Mm-hmm. I mean, behind the scenes, but uh, they gave me an opportunity, and it was it was kind of cool. Yeah. And, and it was kind of a you know the the character doesn't have a huge role in the film, but it was you know I tried to make the best of it by you know thinking about the characters feelings about you know he was kind of a youngish naive kid and he ends up killing someone and you know that that's kind of a big deal so mm-hmm. i tried to get into how the character might have felt and this is a thomas that's so thomas yeah. yes voiced by megastar christian bale christian bale yes did, yes. You, ever, did you ever meet him or yeah at the recording sessions yeah. and when we took breaks we'd play foosball and i think i beat him a few times so you beat batman i beat batman <laughs> i'm sure that that'll change that would change now but <laughs> But that that was fun. It was all, it's always great to go to the recording sessions because it's not just the audio and it's not even just the recorded video sessions that help. It's seeing what the directors or hearing what the directors uh thinking, you know, when he when he directs the actor. Mm-hmm. You know, you're getting, you know, I would write notes on what the director was telling the actor, you know, what he thought about what the scene was. Different directors, you know, direct differently. Uh so that's always interesting, but and also, it's kind of cool to see how the actors would behave in between takes and just as personalities themselves. And, and sometimes you'd look to see if there's anything extra to put into the character that might just be them naturally. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, of course, recording sessions, they're not, they're not truly doing a full performance, you know, because they're stuck behind the microphone. So it's kind of neat to see how they behave in, in between the takes. And um, kind of did that on Jane, kind of used some of her stuff in between takes as ideas for the animation. So when we talk about acting and you mentioned method acting and your brother's uh, acting experience, how do you, do you get up and act when, when you're doing animation? How do you, how do you figure out like what the character's going to do? Do you just look at your paper and think it would be cool if they were in this pose or that pose? Or do you jump up and oh, run man, around the room? It's so complicated. I mean, if you had the luxury of having time at the beginning of a film, it's really, great to be part of the design process where you're actually drawing the character because then you're you're already thinking about how they might move and then sometimes I'll think of people that I that I've known or people that I know or actually you know you can get up and walk around the studio or, or walk outside and just see how somebody you might get ideas from observing people around you 
you know, with some of the films, we did shoot live action reference. Um, but as I mentioned earlier, you know, you want to have a certain body language for the character within the film. So when I actually do animate, I don't really get up and act out too much. I will get up and see how a basic pattern may happen, or I might be sitting at my desk and moving stuff around, but I don't really have a mirror. I don't sort of look at myself in the mirror kind of a thing. Mm -hmm. I try to visualize it. And I, I think of the paper as a graphic, you know, substance in that you're moving shapes. I always saw it as moving shapes around a flat screen, mm -hmm. a graphic medium. Uh, so when I animated, I tried to think of whether there should be a choreography of these shapes moving across the screen. I mean, should the character be more stagnant, more still at this point in the film? Is, and then if they're still, what's that graphic shape that's going to convey a bit of how they feel? And that's how, I, you know, I thought about poses. And I still sort of feel that way about CG. It's still a, a flat 2D medium, unless you're doing 3D glasses sort of a thing. But mm -hmm. because of the, the, the nature of animation, the, the, the magic of it is really seeing things animate, the squash and stretch and movement. So how do you want to choreograph that movement without being over-animated? So again, certain characters or certain scenes are great because they allow for the movement, but then you want to have texture. So you're like, well, the character at this point in the film, maybe they're a little bit softer and don't move as much. And you really want to try to think of the movement through, it's really, it really sounds kind of heavy, uh -huh. but you really want to think about what you're doing. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah. You know, I you know I guess Fred Moore would have you know a much more natural way of doing all this stuff. Mm -hmm. But you know, he must have thought about because they were you know at that time they were getting all kinds of information in those animation classes. You know, what is composition? What are you know strong shapes? What's a negative shape? It's they were getting all this cool information at that time, and they were again trying to apply it in the films they were working on. Yeah. So you know, I try to do that for myself. Try to create little schools of thought. You know, before I start a character, and um, you know even. Hercules, you know, the way we designed some of the characters was with Greek shapes and, and vases in mind. And uh, then it's like, well, how is that going to move? You know, is it's a car cartoonier film, so is the is the movement going to have a different timing? And I, I think my Meg animation there has got a little bit of a different sensibility or squash and stretch than, than does Jane or Captain Amelia. Mm -hmm. So it all has to work together, the, the style of the film, what the directors are looking for as far as animation styling, mm -hmm. your timing, all that sort of stuff. So I, I might I might uh, do some acting myself just some for some basic mechanics, but uh, I try to visualize the pattern on, on the paper and how would that move and what kind yeah. of shapes am I going to get. I, I tend to think that way too somehow. Yeah. I do think live action is great to study because you can really see how people move and how they think, but you don't want to become burdened by it. Mm -hmm. You don't want to have to be a slave to, to using live action because a lot of it, there is some imagination to it, you know? And and I really am dying to do something that's even a Max Fleischer type, kind of more surreal mm -hmm. style, and that would be just pure imagination to me. Yeah. I, mean, yeah. I mean, maybe the characters and their behavior and how they might be thinking is one thing, but the way they move would be kind of cool to do something kind of surreal. Yeah. Even in CG, it would be yeah. kind of cool. And there are guys that use mirrors and, and uh, you know, 
shoot lots of live action and it works really great. So it's, again, it's different for different guys mm -hmm. and girls. Yes. The one cool thing about guys like Glenn is, is, is how much thinking he does before doing animation. I think he really, he looks at life and he really looks at what's going on around him, even in his own life. And, uh, the drawing thing is sort of, sort of a secondary aspect, you know, mm -hmm. it's really thinking a lot about what the characters are and what, you know, how they fit into the story. And obviously he has a lot of impact on, on the way films are made. Yeah. And that's what was so cool is, you know, having finally an opportunity to work with guys and work on films that you could approach things in this way. Mm -hmm. And to be honest, I haven't seen a lot of that approach taken. Uh, you know, I don't see it at a lot of studios and I'm not at Disney anymore, so I'm not quite sure how it works over there anymore, but, but it, it was kind of a cool period. It was, it really did feel like you were part of a new golden age at the time. It was. Yeah. <laughs> oh, okay. <laughs> you were part of it. <laughs> I remember you mentioned Boleslavsky before, and the name yeah. of the book is Acting, Acting the, the First, first six, six Lessons. lessons. Yep. And uh, so, yeah, again, you recommended that book to me a long time ago. I think it was probably on probably, probably, probably Tarzan. No, it was probably Hercules, actually. That book, Boleslavsky's book, is a lot about um, exploring. First, it's analyzing and observing. Yep. It's also exploring your senses and your memories and things like that. Yep. And maybe that's something that we could talk about just so that, I don't know, a student can kind of yeah, open you know, up their mind to... You know, uh, yeah, you're always, you're always afraid of talking about this stuff and making animation seem sort of more, oh. more hoity-toity than it is. But in order to to do different kinds of things it's good to actually think about things in a, in a unique way so what's cool about you know even another thing that Boleslavsky talks about is, is clothing you know they I think they put on certain clothes and they mm -hmm. you feel differently and, and that's true you know if you put on a a military suit or a hat you actually start to behave differently and uh, even when I lived in Europe it was kind of neat to see how people behave and and their clothes and and you know, it all kind of mixes together, you know. Uh, you know, in England, it was winter and you'd have these clothes on. You felt more contained. And in, in France, you know, people kind of, the way they moved was differently. It kind of worked with their language. And, you know, I, I, I'd actually love to animate still some characters that were from different cultures and actually get them to behave or move in a, a unique way. Mm -hmm. But anyway, I'm sort of digressing yeah. here. Oh, it's, it's all part of it. So sense memory... You know, when I was sitting and animating scenes, sometimes you'd really get into the scene and I'd try to imagine a situation that might be similar that I experienced. Whether it was you're animating a character who's arguing about something or being argued to, I would try to imagine a, a circumstance in my own life and how did I feel about that? Like, what would I have done? Would I have been pissed off and gotten more aggressive? Would I have been sort of more cowering? Uh, would that work for this character or do I remember a girl that I knew and how did she react? I would constantly try to remember something and you get to the point where you're not actually conscious that you're asking those questions. You know what I mean? Because drawing takes so long <laughs> that you're <laughs> you're asking yourselves a, a hundred questions at one time about the scene. Yeah. And, um, you know, there was even a scene uh, with Jane where she's in the tree and Tarzan's tickling her. And I was kind of animating it in a very mechanical way, you know, head down, shoulders up head up, shoulders down, very mechanical. And it didn't really have a lot of life to it. And I, I was, it was late and I was recalling tickling 
you know, Juliet, my wife's feet and her reaction. So I could visualize, I could see her reaction. And uh, I was really getting into it so much that I was actually starting to feel ticklish myself. It was really, <laughs> it was really strange. <laughs> but it was trying to take the mechanics out of animating, you know, mm -hmm. trying to get into what the scene was. And, and in the end, it has sort of a life to it that's kind of fun. And she seems, you know, very, very, it feels real to me, uh, her reaction. And even actually talking about that scene, that's a scene where she kicks Tarzan. And uh, during the tickling, he's raising her skirt, looking underneath. And then she has to react. She has to actually get a bit indignant before she kicks him. So it's actually trying to, it's kind of neat to try to find a pattern to make sure your audience sees what they need to see at a particular time. So she has to get kind of indignant, hold it. They have to be able to see what he's doing, you know. So their eyes are traveling back and forth across the screen. And then her reaction, they have to have an anticipation so the audience gets to see that she's doing something. And then, of course, the resolution. So that's another cool thing about animating with and acting characters mm -hmm. is knowing when to steal the show from another character. You know, choreograph when an audience is supposed to be looking at your stuff. Uh, a great film for me is uh, The Odd Couple, the original film with Jack Lemmon. It all takes place basically in, in, in an apartment. Mm -hmm. And just the choreography between those two guys, Walter Matthau and uh, Jack Lemmon is amazing. And literally the other guy will stand there and not move at all. Yeah. And it's almost like a held pose. Yeah. And you're like, well, that guy's not really acting. Well, it allows the, other, the audience to see the other guy and it gives you time and it, it lets you know that the other character listening is actually listening. Mm -hmm. He doesn't know yet how to react because he hasn't heard the whole bit of action and that's what you'll see also in bad acting is is characters knowing what the whole line of the other character is going to be and it's like they're already getting ready to Waiting say to react right and i think great actors kind of show their character processing the information and then saying something and then reacting mm -hmm. so they time stuff really really well yeah which leads me to another thing is is showing <clears throat> showing beforehand how a character reacts in their face a lot of times with characters, they'll have a moment where you show in either their body or their face the understanding of the information they've just gotten. So there might be an eight-frame change, and then they go off into a new action. So their face might brighten up or get angry or whatever it is, but for a few frames before they speak, because their brain already has made an assessment, and then they're going to talk about it, unless it's like something where they're scared and they have to react to it very quickly. But I love showing a character's thought process before they speak. Mm -hmm. That to me is where you can get texture and animation is really the thought process and uh, in the animation. Yeah. I think of a, a great actor like, you know, the odd couple of Jack Lemon or Walter Matthau. I mean, that's what every animated character has the potential to be because obviously we get to sculpt every yeah. frame of the film. Right. Every, every frame of the performance is under our control. Right. And uh, it in a perfect world. Well, the problem is sometimes you, the film is cut in such a way that the dialogue is constantly stepping on each other. You don't have that space mm -hmm. to show. It's a visual medium. It hasn't been cut to allow you to show the change in the characters. And, and I'm talking, it could be eight frames. It right. doesn't have to be a lot of stuff. Yeah. So you either fight for that, you know, you rough out it, you, you talk to the director and say, you know, I really think that the character should be thinking a little bit before this bit, you know, this dialogue. Uh, or you put in a test and try to convince them uh, as you're animating. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think you really have to fight for that stuff sometimes because it's not being thought of maybe by editorial or 
or when they're boarding it. Yeah. That's again cool if you fight for it and it works and 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 it you know the character is a strong character and it pays off. So it's it's fun to be part of the process and and that's. The one downside to CG sometimes I feel is that guys are just handed scenes and they animate. You know, it's like here, here's a scene and animate. Don't think about it. Don't you know? It's like go A to B and just do the scene. And that to me is kind of very boring because to me it's not about moving stuff around. It's about thinking of a personality within a story. You want to tell an audience really a story about life and living, and you do it through these characters so they have meaning, right? These characters have meaning within a story, so. Why is that scene even in the movie? Mm. What, what, what's the sequence? And why is that in the movie? And then you know, what's the story? And how does it all fit together? Yeah. So it's kind of fun to be able to think about it broadly. And then maybe the character shouldn't move at all. You know, maybe that's a scene where the character is so distraught or is really thinking about stuff. And that in live action, there's a lot of great scenes to me that are really strong scenes where a character doesn't move at all. And I used to show some of that stuff when I worked at Disney with some of the crew. I think at the time I was taking The Fugitive and uh, that actor. Um, Tommy Lee Jones? Tommy Lee Jones. Yeah. The guy barely acts, you'd imagine. You know, he, I, I just, I would isolate scenes where, the, where he was just standing there just looking into, at someone by itself. It, it, it has no impact at all. But in context, you sh- it shows that he's really thinking or he's really upset. The audience is like, oh my God, what is he going to do? What is he going to do? He's really... You know what I mean? It mm-hmm. sort of sets up an anticipation of what might come later. Yeah. But if you're animating it, sometimes you'll go, oh, gosh, it's kind of boring. You know, maybe I'll have him lift his shoulders and kind of like, you know, <laughs> sigh, you know, strongly. And, and it kind of ruins the scene, perhaps. You yeah. Know? But you don't know if you don't know the context or if it's not being directed well. And, um, you know, you animate some of those scenes where the character's barely moving and other animators see it and they're not impressed, you know. So you... That stuff's hard. It is hard. It is hard. <laughs> it's not easy because to you're really trying to still. you're trying to communicate what's in the story, and you want to communicate to an audience. And some of the times you're just you get lost, and you think you're trying to please other animators, and uh, and it's hard to keep that control sometimes. But yeah. um, but I think again that adds to the texture by having scenes that are very animated, and then scenes that are very still. Mm-hmm. And I think for me personally, the the scripts or the stories that allow for that to happen in your animation are the strongest. You know, there are some films that I've worked on where the animation is over-animated. I mean, it's constantly animated. It's over-animated. The director felt that that's the way to go. So if that's the direction, then that's the way it is. But I don't think that's the best way. Yeah, I remember reading an article years ago about Denzel Washington. There was a, a director that had worked with him. I can't remember the film. But the director was really upset because when they were shooting scenes... Denzel wasn't doing much. He was just sort of standing there, and uh, and the director was like, damn, he's not really doing anything. But then they'd go in and they'd edit the shots together, or they'd look at him in continuity and dailies, and uh, he was floored by his performance. I mean, he did the right thing at the right time in the scene, you know. And and for me, it is, it is really building curiosity for your audience when a character isn't doing a whole lot because they're like, if it's the right scene, they're like, oh, my God, he's really upset or or he's going to blow up or what's he going to do? What's he going to do? It kind of creates that curiosity in the audience. And then the right thing to do, of course, eventually is to pay it off in some way. You, you like that better than just telling them what the character's thinking right then? <laughs> yeah. What I'm thinking right now is, yes, isn't that called exposition? Uh, yeah. I mean, another great shot. I'm just thinking of these shots here uh, in Witness. Uh, 
there's the scene where uh, Harrison Ford finds out that his best friend or his colleague got murdered and he's in the phone booth and he's it's the back of him the whole shot I believe is the back of his head and he's got the Amish hat on and he's in a phone booth and he finds out that information he just hangs up the phone and it's very close on his back and he just drops his shoulders and drops his hat there's very little going on and it's just like it was so powerful to me that, A, it's the back of him. It's not even his face. And I think he leaves the phone booth, and I believe, I may be wrong, but then he encounters the high the teenagers from the city who kind of taunt them, and then he kind of he, he fights them. Right. But that's the release of the anticipation that you've just shown where he finds out his friend has been yeah. murdered. I just think that stuff's priceless if yeah. it's done yeah. well. If he had... You know, stayed in the phone booth and slammed the phone down and yeah. banged, banged on the glass. And then he goes out and beats someone up. It's like, hey, this guy's on a rampage. Yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's not as strong. And you think when you find out information like that, how do you react? There's probably such shock in you that you don't know how to react, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you convey that? And uh, it's usually by doing nothing. Yeah. You know, I, I keep thinking of scenes here. There's a great scene in uh, Toy Story where you've... Buzz finds out that he's not really a unique toy. He finds out that he's one of thousands, right on the television, mm-hmm. when he sees on the television. Yeah. That scene is amazing because you just see him taking in, processing the information and the sadness in him. I think there's a similar thing with him where it's, and then he walks away from that and uh, he's very dejected. But that was a great scene. There's no dialogue mm-hmm. from him, you know. And uh, you really let it sink in that he's discovering that he isn't who he thought he was. I mean, those those kinds of scenes are priceless. Mm-hmm. And you know, <clears throat> you know, audience members will say always say, "Oh, that was a great film. It was so funny, etc." But there's all these things that are layered in there that they don't understand. And if if they did, then they'd be great story people at at Pixar and Disney. But I think great films have that stuff. You know, they have really strong character uh, changes and. Great directors allow for that stuff to come through in the animation. Mm-hmm. You know, um, we did those silent movie things at lunch there too. That was kind yeah. of a yeah. I mean, it's funny because it seems like a, a animation cliche to study like Charlie Chaplin or Buster Keaton, but it's good stuff. But to me, it's sophisticated stuff. If it's, I think Chaplin stuff is they they understood character i mean it was just another era and a different way of communicating but yeah but it's also um just the phrasing you know the the, the staging directing the audience it's like they were perfect at that yeah they understood character more than anybody and of course they under, because they were using the same character in so many films they understood that character really well mm-hmm. you know and there's a great series uh called the unknown chaplain uh that was made by british television a few years ago and they found a bunch of Chaplin's outtakes, and they they actually went through all of his outtakes, and they pieced together his process. And uh, it's so cool to see how he would work. He would he would do his rough pencil tests in real time. <laughs> he would he would set up the camera, think of a scene or a situation for his character, and then try out ideas, what his character would do, and sort of hone in the story as he was shooting it in front of the camera. He might get halfway through a project in the shorts when he was doing shorts and really discovering his character. He would go through half of the film and realize his character was not that these this was not the right idea for his personality, his character. So he would totally change his character to another character within the same story 
and then continue on. Mm-hmm. And uh, he was exploring. He, he was doing his storyboards, basically, yeah. in, and, in, in real time and on film. And he was kind of thumbnailing the uh, the gags at the same time. Yeah. He would try it and then and it, and try would, it and try and, it. And he would throw out gags that were very, very funny because yeah. he didn't think that it fit the story or his character. Yeah, it's discipline. Yeah, it's discipline. You know, he he had he created some stories, feature film ideas that were very big ideas. Yeah, if you think of the Great Dictator, that's kind of a ballsy idea to be making at that time. You know, deals with satirizing a, a world leader. Yeah, uh, you know, the U.S. wasn't quite in the war yet against him, against Hitler, but Chaplin satirized him. So the ideas can be big ideas, but yet he's got characters that have you know some emotion to them and the humor. I mean, he's the king of pathos and and humor. City Lights to me is one of the greatest greatest films of all time. I mean, the last shot in the movie is a payoff for the whole movie. <laughs> it's like if if you watch that whole movie and don't watch the last scene, then it's kind of pointless. But yeah. great emotion, great character analysis. Uh, again, in this documentary that the BBC did, or Thames Television, they show his process working on that film, and it's just amazing how he would explore even the way he meets the blind girl. Uh, he tried many different. Nothing was logical for him. He was con- constantly trying to find the the logical way for his characters to meet and and to react to each other. And uh, in that film, he kind of pieced it together in such a perfect way. Mm-hmm. And he really, I think, uh, in that they show like five different ways of, of doing it. Yeah, and they're all very different. And and the one that he did sell, I mean, it was the best one. It, yeah, it was, and it's logical, and yeah. it works to bridge the characters and. And then you had Buster Keaton who worked in a totally different way. You know, he'd, he'd maybe read the papers and find something that was funny that, that he'd make fun of. And uh, he knew the beginning and the end. And then he would work on the middle as he went along. He'd have gag writers and they'd sort of sit and come up with ideas that day. And they'd shoot scenes. And uh, his his films are, are solid. I mean, they're really funny. And then Harold Lloyd, who's extremely funny as well. Mm-hmm. He was... Uh, you know, he was the everyman, the American everyman at that time. So he put his character in everyman situations, and he satirized stuff, and he too had great gag writers. But they had gag ideas that I've never even seen today that are hilarious. Mm-hmm. It's really, really fun stuff. So I remember at Disney, at, at a period just before I left, I was having uh, lunchtime lectures or classes where I'd show these documentaries on the silent film actors' uh, styles and how they worked. And all this stuff, you know, the Boleslavsky stuff and all the, all this, it's just a way of making you think that there's an approach to be taken to animation, that you can come up with your own approach, much like Chaplin and Keaton and those guys did. They understood character and then they approached the films in a way that was unique to them. So it's just trying to get guys to think about, you know, get more information, analyze, and then eventually you come up with your own mm-hmm methodology and approach but it's just be curious about all the different ways you know just don't get stuck doing one thing because over time it might you might find yourself sort of limited in your uh in your storytelling or Mm -hmm. or, you know if i had only learned how to draw in a don bluth way and animate a don bluth style then i would have been pretty much hosed after i left so Mm -hmm. if you are thinking of his character then it doesn't matter what kind of a feature film or what studio you're at you're or what style or what style then you're finding something unique hopefully because you're communicating ideas to an audience it's not good to forget that yeah i think we talked about this a long time ago but on tarzan you animated in red pencil on paper and then you passed off that paper and they did the (laughs) cleanup right on your drawings okay this is how it worked Uh, (laughs) i would kiss the paper as they say with my pencil Uh 
-huh. with the red. So I had a very light touch. So I would show my pose test in, a, in this way where very light poses. And then I would add breakdowns, do new poses, change things based on the director's notes. <clears throat> but I would want to get an idea to the director as soon as possible. I hate the idea of spending days and days finessing something and then they never liked it in the first place. They never liked the idea in the first place. So I, I try to get something relatively quick and simple to them early on, continue to work on it. But I continue to work on the same drawings. I'll rub them down. I'll, I'll kind of finesse them more. I'll, I'll solidify the drawing a lot more, but always in red pencil. The director approves the animation, and I totally, that's it. I finish off the drawings, finish off all the breakdowns. Uh, my timing charts are such where there's usually a break, you know, a major breakdown between keys. You know, when something moves from A to B, if you were just to do railroad tracks in between A and B, it's going to be very mechanical. But if you at least do some sort of a breakdown where there's some drag or overlap or whatnot, then it's going to have some animation to it. So I have really main, I have key breakdowns in between keys. Just for people that don't fully understand what a breakdown is. Yeah. Do you think we can? It's kind of. Break down what a breakdown is? If you have your major poses and you do a pose test, it's the broad idea. But as you, as you start to break it down, as you start to finesse your animation, you want to have, uh, let's say, a bouncing ball. At the top, it's going to be circular. At the bottom, when it hits the floor, it's going to be flat. So those are your, kind of your main keys of where the character is coming from and going to. A breakdown might be the middle drawing, which is stretched because gravity is pulling it. So it's not a direct in-between. It's kind of a breakdown action. It has physics influence generally to me. Like if it's a character that's standing up and kind of is moving downward, your breakdown may have something where their head is dragging, their body is stretching a little bit. So it's breakdown actions in between main poses. That's a pretty good explanation. Is that good? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, so I get a lot of keys and breakdowns so that in-betweens are generally just in-betweens. Uh, you don't want in-betweeners animating. You don't want the in-between actions to have extra animation. Truly, in-betweens are just moving a character from A to B with favors, slowouts, etc. So that's why when you mentioned much earlier that I had these kind of long timing charts, a lot of them would have maybe 15, 20 in-betweens, but I would have one or maybe two breakdowns within that. And I'd mm -hmm. say follow, follow rough breakdown. And then I'd have in-betweens around it. Anyway, so I'd have my keys breakdowns all red pencil, and then I'd want to give that to the cleanup artists, and they would rub down my keys, and they would actually do the pencil work on my, my actual drawings. They wouldn't put a new sheet of paper. What was the reason behind that? Uh, I drew very cleanly by the time it was finished. So there was no reason to put another sheet of paper over and redraw it maybe yeah, in red, right. and then repencil it. Right, because like, that's what a cleanup my... person does anyways. They'll redraw in red and then right. draw over it in graphite. Right. So you've already done the red. Right. So why bother, right? here's my drawing. I just want it to look like that. Yeah. So they would do the nice, you know, and they would, you know, they would, they would make stuff look a little better, you know, because, you know, I was dealing red and, but they would, they would clean up. And first of all, they'd Xerox the red drawings uh, in case anything went uh, bad. They would always have copies of the, my roughs, but generally it was never a problem, you know. And my wife was my assistant, so she was cleaning up my keys, and she did a pretty good job. So, uh, <laughs> and you never felt weird about the fact that those drawings don't exist that, anywhere. That is weird now that I can't. I, mean, I can't, we can't go look at your roughs. Anymore. I know it's it's weird. There I are mean, there are some, uh -huh. 
there are some somewhere. I think maybe on Aladdin, I didn't work that way. But um, but yeah. Well, and I guess we don't do this to have drawings in the library somewhere. Yeah, well, that, that was, for me, that was trying to figure out a way to have production work so that I could get my work on the screen as much as possible mm -hmm. and a lot of it as much as possible. So I definitely did have a technical approach to animating. I tried to be fast with animation because you could sit there and finesse one scene for a long time and make it the best scene in the history of animation, but you want to have as much animation in a film as possible. You want to look at an hour's, you know, an 80-minute film and say, I did 15 minutes of it mm. or 10 minutes of it. Uh, so you have to have a process. So it was that idea. Know what the character was, get as much information as possible, rough out a scene on a Monday. I would sort of rough out a scene Monday sometime, Monday, Tuesday, get it to the director, get their notes, make some changes by the Tuesday, Wednesday, have them sort of agree to it, start tying it down, uh, break it down. And by Friday, uh, and as I'm breaking down the first part of a scene and tying it down, I'm handing it to an in-betweener, like Thursday. So Friday, by Friday, I'm sort of done. You know, this is like a five-foot scene, let's say, or seven feet. Done, and then the in-betweener is kind of just behind me. Uh, and so by the end of the week, hopefully I have a scene all roughed out, all in-between, mm -hmm. get it get it approved, and or make the final changes on a weekend. Uh, and then Monday start a new scene. I mean, you really had to have a system. And if it was a, if it was a seventy foot scene, of course, it would be over five or six weeks or whatever mm -hmm. it was. And uh, but it's a similar process where I'd rough out the whole thing as much as possible. But it was and try good... to try to discipline myself not to rough out two drawings and then shoot it and see what they were. It was yeah. really really rough out the whole scene, flip it, and get a sense of what was happening in the flipping go back, add some extra drawings, and really try to have it f feel animated by flipping it mm -hmm. and not be dependent on the technology of the scene machine or the camera line tester and uh, overshoot. And I, I heard a story a couple of years ago that in the 40s, you know, when they were animating at Disney, they had to shoot pencil tests. They had to shoot their tests on film, and you know, they would get it back maybe the next day. So, you know, you couldn't. You couldn't do tests forever and then wait days mm -hmm. and days. I mean, and they, I guess there was a thing. If a guy sent his scene back to camera for testing more than three times, that he really wasn't ready yet to be an animator. <laughs> you know, he wasn't worth well, his. <laughs> wow. Well, that forced him to be good, I guess. Yeah. So you had to really understand yeah. your timing and, and yeah. what you would get back. And, uh, you know, there's guys today. I mean, Chris Sove, I'm working with here now at the studio, and he really understands timing. You know, he worked on the first two seasons of, of Ren and Stimpy, he worked on Iron Giant. He directed some TV shows, but he can look at an X sheet and time stuff out. Mm -hmm. And I'm not, I don't even think, you know, I could do that. I mean, he really, he really knows what he's going to get back when he times stuff out and charts it. And it's really great to work with guys that, that have that ability. But the, the, the special part of that is though, is he doesn't waste any time shooting anything. Yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. That's, I even find that when I'm animating, it's like, it takes time to even watch the shot, you know? just to watch it over and over and over again. At some point you're thinking, I'm wasting time here. Right. I should just get back to fixing it. But, uh, and that too, but, it's like but, where you have to decide fast, okay, this is not working. I have to fix this and go back and fix it without just like laboring and watching and, and like being uh, like hypnotized by watching but, your stuff. Yeah. And it's also tough. You don't want to get into the details too soon, like animate the ears or a tail mm -hmm. and get hung up on finessing stuff. And then when you show it to the director, like, well, the whole idea of the scene is wrong. 
you know. Yeah. And there you've gone and finessed you know, details and spent a lot of time wasting time. Same goes for CG, though, I feel. You know, you can sit there and play blast your scene 5,000 times. It'd be, it'd be nice to discipline yourself into understanding poses and, and general ideas and timing and cutting out the number of times you have to, to play blast things, etc. Mm. But anyway, it's, yeah. it's a different discussion. It's, it's a totally valid one, though. I mean, But working in red and working the way I do, you know, maybe it was a factory approach to... to but, you know, to me, making a film is somewhat of a factory approach. Mm -hmm. It's You've got so much time. You've got so many people. You have to put so much footage out each week. You know, it's not quite a fine art yet. You know, it's it's definitely a, a commercial art, and you've got a finite amount of time to produce what you have to produce. So in, in that regard, when I am animating in the office, like I mentioned before, I get into a zone, and you, you can literally you could be sweating you're so into it you know mm -hmm. you're like roughing out a shot and it's it's kind of it's a lot of fun when you're yeah. in that zone you know it's kind of a high in a weird way <laughs> i remember a couple Until times i would i would uh, knock on your door and stick my head in and you would just like throw your hand up like no not now yeah, <laughs> get no, out no. of here yeah, <laughs> yeah. yeah well i equate that to you know giving a performance you know a, a violinist on stage you know he's in the middle of it you know it's like do you want to come up and go hey buddy can you know would you like a coffee you know you don't want to break his concentration yeah. it's 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 cool when you when you've got it, you know, when you've got that concentration going, mm -hmm. it, it's great to keep going with it. Yeah, that's when the time can really fly. And yeah, you, totally. You end up at like you know five hours have gone by, and you're just like, whoa. Yeah, I know. It's like yeah. it's midnight. What? Yeah. And then you know, because you're supervising, you're working with a crew, so you're looking at people's tests all day. And when you do have time to animate, it's a short amount of time, so you have to figure out how to do it concisely. Yeah. And I would probably spend most of the morning and daytime working with the crew and then I'd start animating around three o'clock mm -hmm. and stay till about eight to 10 o'clock at night yeah. uh, working on my own stuff. When we were working with the Paris crew, we had some animators on Hercules and Tarzan working in Paris. So in the evenings, it was a good opportunity to look at their stuff, give them notes so that when they came in in the morning, they actually got, got their notes and could work on their scene again and then send more notes because of the time change. But uh, with that process, though, you you still animated like probably averaging like 15 feet a week or something like that? Yeah, I think the last three months of Tarzan, I was doing 15. That's pretty um, impressive. <laughs> yeah, but it, it's just a, having a system. Yeah, but I just want to stress to the people that are listening that that's so important to have a workflow that you can count on and always use and not, not reinvent yourself every single shot. I mean, the, the acting and the action may be reinvented, but... How you do it, it, you need a standard workflow. Yeah. yeah, I think that's true of real actors. I think they're professional. You know, they come in and they do the job. You know, they have, you know what I mean? They don't, I'm sure most of them don't go, well, you know, I'm not into it right now and I'm going to go and surf I, the internet. <laughs> yeah, I'm going to go, I, you know, I'm going to go to the library and it's like, dude, what are you talking about? The, the camera crew's here and yeah. you've got to shoot now. So they have to have a method in order to get the performance that they, they want to give. Mm -hmm. But it is fun to, to listen to other to real actors talk about their approaches. Again, they're all different, you know. Um, Johnny Depp is great. He talks about bringing a feminine aspect to a lot of his characters, which is interesting. Uh, he's on that Bravo channel. He talks. Mm -hmm. I can't remember specifics, but he talks about each character. He brings sort of a feminine trait to them, mm -hmm. whether it's overtly costume or a mannerism or a sensibility. So that's kind of interesting. Mm -hmm. I just love reading about Bill Teitler too, you know, that he really got into the 
the meat of his characters a lot. Yeah. To me, those are the guys, even as much as the Nine Old Men were great, I really, really respect the original guys. Fred Moore, Bill Tightlaw, yeah. Norm Ferguson. Those guys really helped Art Babbitt. They really helped to invent sort of that, that, that yeah. methodology. Yeah, they really did lay the groundwork. And, I, you know, we haven't really talked about Warner Brothers guys or, or the Fleischer guys. And I'm I'm not even that well read on them. Again, what, reading John Crisolucci's blog, I'm finding out so much more about other animators. And, yeah, yeah. That that are amazing. Yeah. You're going, wow, that guy did that. I never even knew his name. Mm-hmm. And there's a lot of guys that really are owed some some credit over the years uh, that that worked hard at, you know. And even Windsor McKay, I I, I love the spirit of that guy. You know, he he loved animation he decided to make shorts and and had fun doing Gertie the dinosaur and doing it in a crazy way of tracing back every background you know and he envisioned animation as being something big you know and and uh, i think for a while disney picked up on it and and now i think you know there's still more to be done with animation that that needs to be explored but it's kind of cool to see the spirit of animation and or the history of it in that a lot of the people that moved it forward, guys that actually did it as a job, you know, that Windsor McKay was an animator, Hanna-Barbera were animators, Disney was an animator, Richard Williams was an animator, um, Don Bluth even was an animator, uh, John Lasseter, Brad Bird, you know, these are guys that actually did the art form, you know, were actually animating. Mm-hmm. They understand that it's about character and uh, it's, you know, in the last few years, corporate it's been corporatized quite a bit, but uh, I think the guys that are still leading the way are guys that actually did the art form. Like we were talking about before the interview, just the idea of an animator is a, a bit obsessed about animation. Yeah. And not just animating a character, but the whole mm-hmm. concept of it and yeah. the, the whole package. And. I don't know. There's just a certain amount of um, obsession and study. Yeah. It's a crazy that, business. Uh, yeah. Maybe I should say that, but it's a crazy art form to do. Yeah. You're animating every single, like roll a whole reel of 35 millimeter film out and it's going to go for a long time. And then imagine drawing every friggin' frame. It's, that's what we do. It's insane. Yeah. It's funny. Um, uh, Raffaello. Do you know Raffaello? Yeah. 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 Uh, we talk about like changing, like figuring out ways to change the process. And sometimes it's like, the, the reaction might be, well, that's crazy. And, and the answer is, look what we do for a living. <laughs> you know, it's like we draw a movie one frame at a time. That is insane. It's really literally insane. Totally. But it's what we all do for a living. Yeah, totally. It's insane. It's a crazy idea. That concludes part two of my interview with Ken Duncan. There will be at least one more show with Ken. Uh, I've noticed that the shows are generally getting longer, and I think that's a result of my schedule lately. It's actually faster for me to make one long show than to break it up and publish multiple shows. And I'm just curious about how that's working out for you, the listeners. In the end, you're going to hear all of the interviews. I'm just wondering if it makes a difference to you how long the shows are. So send me an email and let me know if it matters to you. Uh, You can email me through the form on the site or directly at animationpodcast at gmail.com. Like I said in the last show, it takes all my spare time to get out one show a month. And uh, since I'm extra busy, I don't expect to be answering many emails, but keep in mind that I do read all of them. If you want to leave a voicemail for the show, the number is area code 916-AP-FUNNY. That's 916-A-P-F-U-N-N-Y. Or you can go to animationpodcast.com and click on the voicemail link for all the info. 
I do have a new voicemail to play for you from Long Island, New York. Hey, this is uh, Michael Giruaco from Long Island, New York. And uh, I, I've been listening to your podcast for about since you first started back when you did the Andreas Deja interview back in 05. And it's just been a real, real treat listening to these podcasts and these interviews for these past few years. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm actually an uh, animation student now at SVA in New York. And uh, I've been listening to these interviews while I'm actually animating. I'm actually animating right now in my own little home studio here while I just finished uh, listening to the first part of the Ken Belkin interview. And, you know, I just want to say great stuff, great stuff. Um, you know, I, I, I've been in that, I've been drawing for so long and I've, and I've been wanting to be a 2d animator and I'm glad and these interviews in this podcast itself have been a really great big influence on me listening to all these people like Bernie Maddinson and Glenn Keane and Dale Bear and all these people. And it's been, it's been a real pleasure listening and, and, uh, you know, hearing what all these great masters have to say about uh, animation and Disney and all the stories that they had to tell us. I find it so interesting. And uh, I just want to say thank you very much. Um, yeah, I want to be a 2D animator. And, um, you know, like I said, I'm animating right now on a little project now, but uh, I have a blog online. So if you ever want to check out my stuff, uh, my stuff is there, or, uh, I mean, it's been, you know, you have been a great influence on me yourself, you know, so just laying out there. I might sound like I'm gushing a little too much, but I'm just saying that in the true heartfelt way. So thank you very much. Goodbye. Thank you for such a sincere message, Michael. I, I really do appreciate it. And um, Michael didn't mention his website in the message, but if you want to check it out, it's forthebirdsblog.blogspot.com. I'll have a link in the show notes on my site. Once again, I want to mention our sponsor, AnimationMentor.com, the online animation school. It's their commitment to this podcast that's the reason why I'm getting a new show each month. So uh, thank you, Animation Mentor. Well, we've reached the end of show 27. I'll see you next time. And as always, thanks for tuning in. <laughs>